Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 6 is where we left off last week and where we're picking back up this morning. If you've been with us, if you're from Crosspoint, you know that we started a journey in the New Testament letter of Paul to the church at Rome called Romans at the beginning of this year, and we're just trekking through it week by week. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 6, so if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. You're welcome to keep that Bible if you don't own one. You can find Romans 6 if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible and the page numbers that are listed there. It's two different page numbers listed because there's two different printings of the same version of the Bible that you may have in front of you. So I'd uh, love for you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. We handled verses 1 through 5 last week, and we're going to pick back up in verse 5 this morning and read through verse 10. And as I mentioned last week, I think Romans 6 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible in regards to living practically in this life for Christ. I think Romans chapter 6 is a treasure trove of, of spiritual food for this journey through this desert that we all live in as we live this life. And in the midpoint of this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to get into some very specific application, and we're going to spend some time thinking about things that we must do. But before we get to that point, there is a foundation, a theology that Paul wants to establish in our hearts on top of the theology of Romans chapters 1 through 5 that he's already established that are essential for us rightly understanding Romans chapter 6 and fighting sin in the Christian life. And so, much like last week, before we get into application, which is going to be the weeks to come, there, there's a truth to stare at this morning. And I want us to behold the glory and the beauty of this truth, of our union with Christ, if we're believers, and the implications of that. And I think, and I think this is a biblical principle, that as we behold, as we stare at this beautiful truth, actually beholding it has a kind of transformative power. So, in a sense, to behold is to become. That's how powerful the Word of God is. That's how powerful seeing the work of Christ is rightly. When we behold it, it has this transformative effect on our lives. Think of it this way. Think of, um, think of a, a marathon runner running the marathon in, in the Olympic Games. And think of maybe midway through that race, their legs are tired and they are winded and they are not, that person, that runner is not running up to the standard that they had hoped that they would run. Their pace is off and they find themselves midway through the race, far back in the pack. And just imagine if just God could pull back time and eternity and speak to that runner in that race and say to that runner, even though midway through this race you find, yourselves at the back of the, you find yourself at the back of the pack, 
the next 13 miles, you will progress through the pack, you will get to the front, you will make it to the finish line, and you will win. Now imagine the impact that that picture of the future would have on that struggling, tired runner. The picture's not, I'm going to beam you up, Scotty, and just fast forward you to the finish line. The picture is, you are going to steadily improve, and you're going to win. Now, I'm not a runner. Praise be to God. I try to run. I'm more like a fast walker. But that type of picture will put some zest and pop in the legs of anybody. And that's the picture that we see in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 10. I want you to see it. Let's read Romans 6. I'm going to read 1 through 10, and then we're going to settle back and peel back the layers of verses 5 through 10. Remember, all this is coming on the heels of Paul in the first five chapters, talking about how the gospel is by God's grace, that we are not saved by our works, that all of us are sinners, that nobody makes themselves right with God by their own works, but rather we are saved by grace, what Jesus has done. The free grace of God is what saves us and makes us right with him. And then God gives sinners who are dead in their sin. He gives them the gift of faith. And then they exercise that faith, which is not their own work, but it's the work of God in them, that they then exercise and behold Jesus. And then a person is saved and made right with God, reconciled. The biblical word is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the radical message of the free grace of God. And this gospel is so antithetical to our man-centered ways that it was producing the possible objection that, well, if salvation is so free and if grace is so good that it can cover any sin, then why don't we just kind of go ahead and sin that grace may abound? And Paul is wanting to hammer home the point That grace doesn't, the saving grace of the gospel does not merely forgive our past sins, but it comes into and so overwhelms our current situation in our heart that it informs and transforms and enables us to fight future sin as we press forward to that sure, certain future, our hope in Christ, eternity with him. So in verse chapter 6, he takes up that objection. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him, there's that phrase, union with Christ, united with him. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Oh gosh, I can barely read the passage without shadow boxing. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, as we stare at this passage and the truth that it contains, would we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the beauty and the glory and the goodness and the satisfaction that alone can come in being united with Christ. May that beholding cause us to become more like Jesus. May my brothers and sisters in this room who are fighting sin and are discouraged and despairing over their failure in that fight, would they, would they see this truth and be emboldened for the fight? And would my friends who are in this room who do not yet know Jesus, God, would you by your grace make the good news of Christ so clear and so beautiful that it would overwhelm their hearts, that it would become beautifully irresistible to them, that they would have no other ch choice, no other option but to just Look and behold and trust and believe in Jesus. Lord, would you do this all for the glory of your name and for the good of your people? And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at verse 5 again and just work our way through these 10 verses. We're just going to have a couple things on the screen today for those of you that are taking notes. No list, just a few truths that I want you to see. Verse 5 again. Let's read. And I think verse 5 really is a kind of key to this whole chapter. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, it's forward looking, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so last week, we, we really just stared at this truth, this doctrinal truth, this theological reality that to be a Christian means that God has united you by, you were dead, separated. We were separate from God. We were separated from the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We were dead in our sins. And God, by his grace, comes and makes us alive, gives us the gift of faith that we then exercise in Jesus. And that faith unites us. It, it puts us together with Jesus. And the, the theological point, the doctrine is the union that the believer has with Christ. And so here's this definition that I want you to see again that we looked at last week. This idea, this truth, this biblical foundation of union with Christ for believers. What does it mean? Here it is again on the screen. You'll see it. Union with Christ. It's the joining of believers to Jesus Christ 
by faith, allowing them to share in all the benefits and riches that result from his person and work. Now, Remember, we are a culture that is dominated by feelings, right? So I realize that you, in fact, I often do not feel like that is true in our lives. But, but one of the, the marks of a person who is, is, is growing in maturity is we are able to separate the objective truth of the Bible and distinguish it from our subjective feelings, right? Because we are dominated by the feels. And guess what? I don't feel like doing stuff a lot. I don't feel like getting up in the morning and eating healthy and burning calories, but we know that it's good for us. I don't feel like, well, I'm not going to give any more examples because I'll just get in trouble because then you'll think, oh, he's talking about me. No, I'm not. Actually, I am. Maybe I am. I don't know. But can we just all acknowledge that there's this gap between sometimes what we feel and what we actually know to be true? And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is willing to anchor us in this truth that this is true about you, Christian, regardless of whether you feel like it or not, is that you, by your faith, you've been united to Christ. You're joined to him and you're inseparable. And this has magnificent implications in the life of a believer. It means that your old self has died with Christ and you have been raised with him and now everything that Christ procured, secured, won through his sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection is yours. That's the basis of this whole chapter. Let's keep going. Verse 6. He says then, now he's spelling it out. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Who's this old self? This old self is what Romans chapter 5 is about. It's this old person, this old Brad, this old you that was in Adam. That We were dead in our sins. This old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Just think about this phrase, our old self. It was, think about what Paul is saying is true about a Christian. Our old self was crucified with him. You know why I think um, our culture is so, have you noticed that this was not a thing when I was younger, at least I don't think it was, but it seems like lately, the past 10 years or so, there seems to be a kind of cultural fascination with zombies. I don't, I don't know where this, all this has just kind of popped up all of a sudden. And, I, you know, zombies, I really don't know what the technical definition of a zombie is other than it just seems like a dead person who's still walking around, right? And I think maybe one of the reasons why we're so sort of fascinated with zombies is because there's a kind of kernel of sort of theological truth. The old man, think of it this way, the old man is like, a, it's like our inner zombie. He's dead, but he's still walking around. And, and what Paul is saying here is that that old man was crucified when Jesus, because you are, are so, just see this truth, you as a believer 
by God's grace, the glory of the gospel is not just this distant transaction where God is millions of miles away in heaven and he, he kind of shoots a, an arrow of grace down at you on earth and you get you know, your eternal future secure and then you're kind of left in a far distance to deal with life until you die. That's not how the Bible pictures salvation. It, it pictures us as separated, estranged from God, but when God saves us, he unites us to Christ. And therefore, what Christ did on the cross through his death, when he died, we, if you're in Christ, died with him. So, as you are dealing with your own personal zombie, which we all have to do, what Paul is wanting to ground us here is at that zombie that we are dealing with, that we must deal with, we have to run the second 13 miles of the race. But as we are dealing, I'm mixing metaphors, zombies, marathons, you guys are confused, I realize that. But as we are dealing with life, Paul is wanting to anchor us in the certain and sure victory in Christ. And so he's saying your old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, this remaining zombiness in us, might be brought to nothing. So do you see, look, even in there in verse 6, we have this kind of mixing of tenses. The old self was crucified, but he still needs to be brought to nothing so that the end state of the Christian, the current reality, moving forward to what we are promised, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Just notice the progress of redemption that, that we see here in this, just verse 6. Notice the three progressions. We've been crucified. We we were in Christ in that sense. All of the benefits of Jesus' death through his perfect life and sinless life, dying to absorb the penalty for our sin on the cross. We were with him as we're united to Christ in faith so that over time we would become who we already are in Christ. There's a progress that goes on there. We would be crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to death so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. No, notice how redemption here, notice how the, the salvation of a Christian is, I want you to think of it in these tenses, a kind of already but not yet aspect to our redemption. John Murray, I quoted him last week, he, he has this famous book, it's called Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. And I think even just the title of the book is really sort of instructive and formative. It's, it's marathon, one, guaranteed, but has to be run, right? Redemption accomplished and applied. Let me, let me just even show it to you from some scriptures in, in the New Testament. Paul in Romans, I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, what does Paul say? I'm just going to flip through a few verses here. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Well, if we read the rest of what Paul has said about salvation, we know that it's, it's fixed, it's certain, it's sure. In Romans chapter 8, I know, like my son, one of my sons uh, last week, he said, hey dad, we're in Romans chapter 6 right now, but you quote from Romans chapter 8 so often that when we get to Romans chapter 8, you're not going to have anything to say. <laughs> I, I said, oh, I'll, I'll figure something out. Don't, don't worry, don't worry. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, he speaks of salvation in past tense. He said, not only are we justified, we are already past tense glorified. But what does he say in Philippians chapter 2? He says we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One chapter over, Philippians chapter 3 verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. So what is already mine, all, what is already mine, I am moving towards to fully possess. You got to get that already not yet tense in your mind. You got to get redemption accomplished being applied. But I press on to make it my own even though it's already ours. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, even there, union with Christ. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, if you don't agree with me, Paul is saying, God will teach you later on that you're wrong. And I'm right. That's what he's saying right there. Only, verse 16, let us hold true to what we have obtained. So do you see what Paul, he's, 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 he's giving the theology behind this, this race illustration that you are, you are guaranteed victory. This is, the, this is the beauty of the doctrine of the union with Christ. And that should produce in you vigor for the race. Do you see that? That's the truth. Look, look, at, look at 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, let's, let's skip forward to Hebrews chapter 10. If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you know that I am just infatuated with this verse. It is so informative. It is so helpful. It is so encouraging. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about this idea that redemption is accomplished and it is applied. It's accomplished out of time through Christ. He's the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth and it is applied in time. That's the Christian life. Hebrews 10 verse 14. For by a single offering, and the writer of Hebrews in context here is referring to Jesus's sacrifice on the cross for our sin. Okay, so for by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, those who are being sanctified. Now, I've told you many times that my mom was an English teacher. She, in fact, she was my freshman year high school English teacher. And if I would have wrote this sentence for an English class in Mrs. E's class, it would have come back with some red on it. Because it doesn't seem sort of like tense-wise possible that something that's already been perfected can still be in process. Past tense, present tense. And in fact, my parents are going to be here for about a month in October. They're visiting. They're retired now. 
and I hope this verse comes up with my mom in the audience because I'm going to say, Mom, the Holy Spirit overrode your red ink. <laughs> Actually, I probably won't say that. <laughs> but do you, do you see what's going on here? It's, you've been united to Christ. You have been crucified. You have been raised with him. It's certain, it's sure. Now run the second half of the race. You're, you're being sanctified. So do you see Paul's picture of grace? Grace is not just a past forgiven and a future accomplished. It's a present enablement to fight the zombie that still lives in us. That that's, that's the point that Paul is making. And as a result, we are no longer enslaved. Just even consider that phrase. We're, we're no longer enslaved. The implication is that we were enslaved. We were enslaved, but we don't, we don't think of ourselves in that way. We, we kind of think of ourselves as sort of free agents who are able to either decide or not decide something or for God. But Paul pictures humanity before, before salvation. He pictures a person here biblically before they are made alive by God as being enslaved. Now, when, when we think of the word enslaved, we, we tend to think of things that are may, maybe very obvious. We, we tend to think of, of uh, uh, you know, shackles and chains and a kind of exterior visible enslavement. And, and certainly that is, that is uh, the, the way some people are maybe even enslaved spiritually. But, but I want you to go deeper than that. I want you to think of what, how sin enslaves us in more, in more subtle and deceitful ways. As in our sin and depravity, before we come to Christ, we, are, we, are hand, we give ourselves over to the world and to our enemy and to the, just our own desires that are outside of God. It, it, it creates kind of, the way I think of it as I was, as I was meditating on this passage, it, it creates pathways in our heart and our mind that just become like, like, like pathways through the forest that we just are so so apt to go back to again and again and again. And, and it's almost so subtle that we don't even notice it. It's not like we have a chain around our neck and there's this red figure, the devil, with pitchforks, you know, and like, like horns. And he's like, he's like speaking to us personally saying, come follow me, wreck your life. Like, I don't think that's how spiritual warfare works for most people. I think it's much more subtle and, and, and it's like these well-trodden paths in our heart become so easy and so regular to us that it's almost like a subliminal, a subliminal pathway that we just get so used to following and it just becomes kind of a habit and that, that we just resign ourselves to that's just the way things are. I mean, let me give you a, a picture. And those of you that are in the army uh, and have spent any time being lost in the woods at Fort Benning can identify with what I'm about to say. Um, there's this thing at Fort Benning called the land nav course, land navigation. And being able to navigate through the woods with a map as a young infantryman, especially a young platoon leader, is a, is a really important skill. 
Isn't that right, First Sergeant? Because there's nothing like being lost because the lieutenant doesn't know where he's going, right? And so one of the things that they teach lieutenants in Fort Benning is how to navigate a map, with a map and a compass through the woods. Well, they've been doing that for decades and decades and decades in the woods at Fort Benning. And what they'll do is they'll put you, they'll give you a map of surrounding Fort Benning, Casita, kind of south Fort Benning, and they'll say, this is where you are, and that's where you need to go. And they give you this little compass, you've got to shoot an azimuth, and then, okay, you're going to this point, and then you kind of walk through the woods, you know, a couple you know, kilometers, a couple hundred kilometers, whatever, you're, not hundred kilometers, but maybe, maybe one, one kilometer, two kilometers, and eventually you'll get to a tree that will have something tacked on it that will say, this is the point, you're here. And there's something, you got like a code you got to write down to prove that you actually got to that point. But the thing is, is knucklehead lieutenants have been wandering around in the woods at Fort Benning for decades. And there are pathways through the woods that seem to, that seem to be headed in the right direction. And you just get on a pathway through the woods and you think, well, it looks like somebody's been here before. I'm just, I'm just going to follow it. It's kind of in the general direction. I'm just going to go. The problem is between the last class and your class, the ranger instructor moved the point to another tree. And just because you're following a path, you're just following a path and you're just being seduced in this wrong way. I think that's how enslavement works for us. Like a, like a lost lieutenant in the woods who is duped, who is duped by a pathway that seems to be right or easy or comfortable or a shortcut. So the human heart is enslaved to sin. And Paul is saying that Christ's work on the cross and his union with you has cut a new pathway through the thick. And he's wanting you to see this new pathway and he's wanting you to be so convinced and so enthralled with the good news of this pathway that you will walk in it and not these old ones. Do you see that? That's the fight that we have to fight daily. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you see that future tense there? We, we already, we've read enough verses to say that this is already true in our lives. But Paul now is saying, okay, this already true reality is also forward, it's future in its application. So we believe that we will also live with him. Future tense, present tense. We will live with him. Think, think of it this way. Uh, think, think of being out at sea. And I don't even know if this is how boats and anchors work, but just roll with me here. Just, just, just imagine this with me. Imagine that you had this boat with this anchor that had a chain that was just really, really long. And just imagine you had some device on the boat that you could toss this anchor to this place that you wanted to get. 
And that, that's what's happening here, I think, theologically. Is Paul is saying that the good news of union with Christ, the reality of what Christ has done and secured for us is like this anchor. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6 refers to Christ as the anchor. And this anchor is thrown to that place that God will get us. And the anchor goes and it drops down and it anchors. And then the Christian life is us just pulling our ship to the anchor that is already set. Do you see that? That that's the picture here. That this has happened. If you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also we will live with him. We, this is sure. This is the Christian life. This is the second half of the marathon. This is, this is the fight. Come on. Get, click in with me. This is where life is lived right here. Grabbing that. Going towards who you already are in Christ. This is the moment when you're in front of the computer screen. When you're at that moment where you know that sin is crouching at your door. That Paul doesn't want to give you a list of things to do so much. And he's going to do that later in the chapter. But before he does that, he wants you to look up so that you behold the glory of the truth of the gospel in your life and you fight sin with our lists or our to-do lists as we anchor ourselves to the sure and steadfast truth that we will make it home. And so he says in verses 9 and 10, he says, we know, and again, he's just elaborating this point, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And the point that he's making based on what he said in the first part of Romans chapter 6 is he's saying this is true of Christ. He was raised from the dead. He'll never die again. Death has no dominion over him. He died to sin once for all. And now he lives a life that he lives to God. And if that's what Jesus has done, because you're in him, that's what you will do. Now, you may be saying, Brad, but there's a whole bunch of like, application that needs to be done. Easy now. Easy. We're going to get to that next Sunday in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, where he's going to say things like, so then you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. And we're going to look at what this looks like in our lives. And we're going we're gonna to make application, but, but we don't want to scurry off to application before we see the glory of the truth that Paul wants us to see. And it's this good news of union with Christ. So let me just summarize it with this. Here's this main point that I, here's a couple sentences. And these aren't, this isn't real clever. It's just, it's just a couple sentences that I want you to see that I think is the summary of, of this passage. And it's this, union with Christ secures our freedom from the tyranny of sin. We are no longer enslaved if we're in Christ. And now, here, here's the truth. We work this out in the present by leaning into the hope of our certain future in Christ. 
And God wants to motivate and inspire and energize us spiritually for our sanctification, for our fight against sin by giving us a picture of the reality spiritually of our status in Christ so that it produces in us vigor, grit, strength to run the race that he has already guaranteed that we will win. I think that's what Paul is saying here to us. Next week, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna apply this to our lives. We're going to look at specific things. We're going to say, okay, what does this look like in my life practically in a, in a culture where we are so apt to go down old, worn pathways, right? In a culture where we have built up so many habits, where we will, we will blow hours and hours and hours on mindless entertainment, on Netflix, on social media, on sin habits that, that are like old pathways through the woods that we are so prone to be seduced down, where our, where our zombie self says, come, no, I, I know all that's true of you. Come back this way. In the coming weeks, we're just going to assault our old pathways. But before we do that, we've, we've got to see this truth. That, dear Christian, we are, this is, this is true of you. This is, this is amazing. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one that Colossians 1 says created the world and everything in it, the one that Hebrews 1 says is the exact imprint and radiance of God, became a man, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, and on the cross he bore the wrath and justice of God that should have been ours. And because he's eternally holy and divine, and because he was a righteous, real human, his holiness was enough to satisfy all that wrath. He absorbed it. He extinguished it. He, theological word being he propitiated it. He consumed it. He exhausted it. And then he rose again in victory over death, sin, and the grave. And now is alive and reigns forevermore. And if God has made you alive as a Christian, what Paul is saying here is that, that you're folded into that. That's who you are. That's yours. It's yours. 
And your fight, your struggle against old pathways and the old self, the old person that still rears its ugly head and will until that day when either Jesus comes back or we die and go to be with him forever. Until that day, God intends for us to apply the redemption that is already accomplished so that our lives would be like a slow picture that presents to an onlooking world the sufficiency and satisfaction of Jesus. And all of that is true of your life right now if you're in Christ. And if, if you're not in Christ... I, I just, I, I'm praying that God would give you eyes to see that because I'm not here to tell you that if you will come to Jesus, three things will, this will be better in your life and this is how Jesus will help you and all this kind of stuff. No, I'm, I'm here to just make the beauty of the glorious news of the gospel hopefully so beautiful and attractive to you that you would be like a person standing at the base of the Himalayas or at the edge of the Grand Canyon or at the foot of the Pacific Ocean and you would see something so glorious and beautiful that for a moment you would just be enthralled by the beauty and the glory and the grace of God and that would open your eyes to see that your only hope would be that you would be united to Christ too. And if you, if you see that, if that is something that you're seeing, then I believe that means that God is causing you to pass from death to life. He's giving you a new heart. He is breaking in to the jail cell of your enslavement to yourself and sin. And he is wrenching the shackles from your neck and your feet and your wrists. And he is saying, you're mine. (laughs) And what do people do that have been busted from jail? By Jesus, they walk out of the cell with him and say, take me to your merry band of pardoned rebels because I want to be part of that crew. It's called the local church. (laughs) Dear friend, do that right now. If you see that, I just want you to behold Jesus and see him. And say, Christ, you are my only hope. Sin has dominated me. The tyranny of sin, I'm enslaved. I'm enslaved. I'm enslaved. I'm lost in the woods. I'm midway through the race and I'm going to quit. And my only hope is not that you would give me motivational tips on how to do better. But my only hope is that you, by your grace would unite me to Christ so that I can die to my old self and rise again and be with Christ forever in him because he's done it. Just say that, Lord, in your way, friends, say that. Pray that. Believe that. And don't leave this room without talking to somebody that you know to be a Christian. Let's pray together. Father, these truths are so glorious, but yet it, it's so simple. And we, we are, part of our 
part of our remaining battle with the flesh is we just like to complexify things, Lord. Would you, would you free us from that this morning? Would you let us just see this beautiful truth that we have been, if we are in Christ, we are in him and he's in us and we are united with him. And, and, and may that so enthrall our hearts. Would we behold that truth so clearly this morning that it would, that it would, that it would help us to become who we already are, that, that we would apply through our sanctification, the redemption that has already been accomplished. And Lord, for my friends that do not yet know this, Lord, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking for them to reach down deep inside themselves and make a change. I'm, I'm pleading with you to give them new life so that they can see this. And so, Lord, I pray that you do that. Do all these things. I, I plead with you. In Jesus' name, for his glory, for your glory, for our good. Amen.